Well, hey, everybody. Great to be here at River Glen. Glad that you're joining us, whatever location you're joining from. My name is Jared Walker, and uh, my family has attended the Pewaukee campus since it launched almost five years ago. But our history with River Glen really goes all the way back to 2010 when we started talking about uh, starting a new church in Menominee Falls that launched in 2011, Legacy Christian Church. And five years ago, I joined the staff of a partner ministry of River Glen, Christian Financial Resources, CFR. We're a nonprofit financial ministry, a church extension fund. Refinanced the loan for this building to save River Glen thousands of dollars in interest every year, and we've been able to do that with churches all across the country. And the reason we're able to do that is because individuals like you and me or business owners or churches invest dollars at CFR. And when you invest at CFR, the only thing those dollars are being used for is to help churches like River Glen. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not helping you pick stocks or mutual funds, not earning any commissions on anything. You know that you're just helping churches when you invest at CFR. And River Glen is actually one of the top two churches in Wisconsin when it comes to how much people from the church have invested at CFR to allow us to in turn help other churches. So if you'd like to find out more about that, I'll be in the lobby afterwards, have some information you can take with you. But our family appreciates being a part of River Glen. I appreciate the opportunity to, to teach here occasionally. And those of you at the Pewaukee campus, I'm a little bit jealous because the truth is I travel a lot for work and I'm in churches on Sundays. You guys go to church with my family more than I do. So a little bit jealous of that. Well, we are starting a new series today called One at a Time. And it was inspired in part by a book by Kyle Eidelman with that same title. Kyle's a, a longtime friend of mine. I've known Kyle for 30 years. Um, and so now you're thinking, oh, you guys were probably two when you met. Thanks. Uh, actually, I say Kyle is a longtime friend. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. Okay, that's a major exaggeration. The truth is Kyle and I met once. It was 30 years ago. We were both seniors in high school. We were both visiting a college on a college visit day the same day that we were both considering attending. He went to that college. I went to a different one. So that was the day I met him, and it was also the day I last had a conversation with him. So he and I are pretty much like this. As we start this series, I thought it would be worth hearing from Kyle himself a little bit behind how he came to write the book one at a time and what kind of the key idea of it is. So let's hear from Kyle.
How did Jesus do it? One person at a time. In Kyle's words, one at a time is the way of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a word that literally means good news. And in a Christian faith setting, when we use the term gospel, we're usually talking about the good news about Jesus. In fact, the first four books of the New Testament, the books that talk about the life and teachings of Jesus, those are often referred to as the Gospels. And as we read through the Gospels, we see at times Jesus was addressing the crowds. There were large numbers of people that were getting his attention. But we also read story after story after story of one-on-one individual encounters with Jesus. Even when there were huge crowds around him, He was able to turn his attention and focus in on one person in the crowd who needed him desperately. In Luke chapter 8, we see a couple of examples of this. Early on in the chapter, we see references to the fact that some crowds have gathered around Jesus. In verse 4, a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town. Further down, verse 19, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Then Luke tells us Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, did some things on the other side of the sea, then returned back across the lake. And who was waiting for him when he returned? The crowds, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And in the midst of that crowd, someone desperate approached Jesus, verse 41. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. It's a crowd that's been following him for a while, coming from town after town. In fact, it's such a large crowd, so demanding, his own family members are not able to get close to him when they want to because of the size of the crowd. And I find it interesting that Luke points out in verse 40 that the crowd had been expecting him. So it wasn't just a large crowd. This was a crowd with expectations. They had things that they expected from Jesus. Yet this desperate father gets through that crowd to Jesus. And any parents who've had a child with a medical emergency, you understand the desperation of that father. At my house, I'm the ER parent. Uh, that means I'm the designated one to make the ER runs because I can handle blood just a little bit better uh, than my wife, Joanne. We have six kids, so I've made a few ER visits, and most of those are just the typical, okay, a couple stitches, and you're sent on your way. If you're lucky, it's just, you know, butterfly strip. But the most extreme case involved my son, who was 17 at the time. I was right next to him when this injury occurred, but I didn't actually see it happen. So I wasn't sure how badly he was injured. I wasn't even sure if he was bleeding. But when my son said to me, Dad, we need to go now, that was all I needed to hear. We jumped into the car. I won't tell you how fast we drove to the ER. And when we got to the ER, I have no idea if anybody was in the waiting room. They didn't matter. I was looking for a doctor who could take care of my son, and frankly, nobody else mattered at that moment. It's with that kind of desperation that Jairus approaches Jesus because his daughter is dying. Just one man in a huge crowd 
who falls at Jesus' feet. In this moment, is Jesus looking through a panoramic lens to see the whole crowd and all that they expect from him? Or is Jesus looking through a zoom lens to focus in on the need of the man in front of him? Luke gives us the answer so briefly we can almost miss it in verse 42. As Jesus was on his way. It's almost an aside. Jesus goes. Jesus follows Jairus in order to help his daughter. And Luke says it because he's about to tell us some other stuff. Almost as an aside, as Jesus was on his way to help Jairus, clearly Jesus noticed Jairus and right away, right away began to journey toward his house to help. And as they travel, guess who's still there around Jesus? Continuing in verse 42, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So the crowds continue to follow Jesus. They're still there, and it's about to get even crazier. We've already seen how Jesus, with a zoom lens, saw the need of Jairus, and despite the crowd, responded to that need. It's going to happen again. Jesus continues to have this zoom lens focus, picking up where we left off now in verse 43 of Luke 8. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. There's a huge crowd, Luke says, nearly crushing Jesus. His disciples, all they can see is that crowd. The people are crowding and pressing, pressing against you, they say. But Jesus, zoom lens engaged, notices the touch of just one person in need. And the woman notices that Jesus has zoomed in on her need as well. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. The woman knew that she'd been noticed. She thought she would remain anonymous, undetected. Surely the healer didn't have time for her. If she could just touch his cloak, maybe that would be enough. And it was. And notice, Jesus doesn't stop to acknowledge the woman because he needs to do so to heal her. He had already healed her by that time. The healing had already taken place, and yet Jesus still stops to acknowledge her. And notice how he acknowledges her. Verse 48, then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter. Now, I've read Luke chapter 8 many times through the years, but it wasn't until I was preparing for this message that I really thought about the significance of that word daughter and how Jesus addresses this woman. Now, this is just my own conclusion. I may be stretching things a bit. But while Jesus is following a man desperate for Jesus' help because his daughter is dying, this woman touches Jesus' robe. And how does he refer to her? Could it be, again, just my own reaction here, but could it be that Jesus was saying, you see how much Jairus cares about this girl that we are going to heal, how desperate he is for her because she is 
his daughter. I view you the same way. I care about you just as much as if you were my daughter. Crowds surrounding him. Jesus follows a man to heal the man's daughter. Along the way, pauses to acknowledge a woman he's already healed, referring to her as daughter. That's living life with a zoom lens. In the book, Kyle Eidemann puts it this way. When someone stood in front of Jesus, time stopped. Everything else in his life, all his concerns, his agenda, his goals blurred and disappeared. He was always fully present. See, there's something powerful in being noticed as an individual, in being seen by others, especially when it feels like you're lost in the middle of a crowd. A great example of this can be found in the work of an artist whose videos have gone viral on TikTok. His name is Devon Rodriguez. And during COVID, he began quietly drawing portraits of people on the subway in New York City. But one time he decided to give someone the portrait he'd drawn of them. And the reaction was so interesting that he continued to do it and recorded many of their responses because he saw something powerful in those responses. Check this out. There's something significant about being noticed, being seen, particularly in a crowd. And this is especially true when you're in a season that's difficult. And maybe that's why so many times when we read through the Gospels, we find the phrase Jesus saw or he saw referring to Jesus. The way of Jesus was to choose a zoom lens to see not just the crowds, but individuals in need right in front of him. Quick side note, we've left a couple of stories of desperate parents unresolved. Let's resolve those quickly if you're concerned. First of all, there's Jairus. There's the dad who came to Jesus because his daughter was dying. The rest of the story is that Jesus continues on to Jairus' house after healing the woman with the bleeding. When they're almost there, some servants of Jairus approach them and say, there's no need to bother Jesus anymore. Jairus, your daughter is dying. Jesus tells Jairus not to be afraid. They continue on to his house, and when they get there, Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. Can't get a better ending than that. And then the story of my own son who was injured. We did get to see a doctor in the ER. He received treatment there, some follow-up appointments with a specialist for a while, and six years later, you wouldn't even know that he'd been injured. We've talked this morning about the books of the Bible that refer to the life of Jesus, the Gospels. They're basically biographies, stories of Jesus' life. 
And it makes me pause and think a little bit. If someone were to write a biography of my life, what kind of lens would people determine that I used to look through when interacting with the world around me? Would it be a panoramic lens focused on big things, on the crowds, on trying to catch everything going on? Would it be a selfie lens focused on me, self-absorbed? Or would it be a zoom lens, the lens that Jesus seems so often to choose to look through? Well, not only did Jesus live out this zoom lens approach, he taught it as well. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. He would often tell a story to make a point, and we call those stories parables. In the three parables in Luke 15, there's something in common in all of them, something that is lost and the search for or the desire to recover what has been lost. The third story is probably the most popular, the most well-known. It's the story of the lost son. We sometimes call it the prodigal son. The second one is the story of a lost coin. And the first, the story of a lost sheep. And that's the parable we're going to focus in on. First, we're going to see what prompted Jesus to tell these stories. Why did he tell them? Here's why. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here we see the crowds that Jesus has attracted. They were not what the re religious establishment expected. In fact, it seems they didn't approve of the crowd. In the first century world of Palestine, it was not unusual for a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, as they became more popular, to have a group of followers who traveled along to learn from that teacher. And so the fact that Jesus has assembled a crowd as a teacher is is not all that unusual, but it's the type of crowd that the religious leaders notice. They identify the crowd as sinners. In other words, people whom you would identify because of their sin, maybe because it was their profession, as in the case of a prostitute, or maybe because their sin was just so well known. That's how everyone identified or associated them. If you can remember the literature work from school days of the Scarlet Letter and the woman who had to go around town with the red A on the front of her clothing because she'd been caught in adultery. That's how everyone associated her was with her sin. The religious leaders mention two things that Jesus does in interacting with this crowd of sinners. He welcomes them and he eats with them. So this goes beyond tolerance. It goes beyond a reluctant acceptance. It's an open armed embrace that includes sitting together for a meal like you do with your friends and your family. And what's funny is the religious leaders make this accusation as a criticism. But Jesus owns it. He acknowledges it as the reason that he came. Here's how Jesus responded in another example as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he was a tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus said, I'm here for them. I see them. I focus on them. They are why I'm here. 
Jesus welcomed and ate with them. Do I th- do that? Do I, do I welcome, embrace those that the religious community typically would have nothing to do with? Selfie lens, panoramic lens, or zoom lens? We know which was the way of Jesus. Am I doing the same? So that accusation from the religious leaders is what causes Jesus to tell these parables. Let's go ahead and jump into the, the first one, the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So Jesus says, suppose you have a hundred sheep. Now, I am not an expert in owning sheep in first century Palestine. I know you're shocked because you look at me and probably think, now there's a guy who would know his sheep. Sorry, I don't. Uh, But from what I've read... In that day, having 20 or 30, that was considered a lot of sheep. That was a large flock, large herd, large bunch of sheep, if you have 20 to 30. So if you have 100, you have a whole lot. And so if one wanders up and you still have 99, you have a bunch. The point is the one, not how many are left behind saved. It's comparing one to a large crowd. Jesus is explaining his own behavior a bit, why he's welcoming and eating those that the religious establishment tended to ignore. He's saying, I see every sheep. Every sheep is mine. Each one is viewed as if he or she had been with me and wandered off. And so if you're listening today and you're thinking, that's me, I'm I'm the one, the one who wandered, yep, right here. Then please, Please, please hear this. Jesus is pursuing you. He will keep coming after you, seeking you to find you. Yeah, there may be 99 in the crowd, but Jesus is looking for you. And if that's you, this place is also for you. Our prayer is that you find this place, this church, River Glen, to be a place where you can explore faith and discover what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Well, this is a pretty short parable, and so in the next few verses, we already come to the end of it here in Luke 15. And when he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus wraps up the story by saying that the shepherd who lost the one sheep goes looking for it. When he finds it, he doesn't punish it for wandering off, doesn't beat the sheep, picks it up, carries it home, and throws a party because the sheep that was lost has been found and is now back safe with the 99 who didn't wander. Frankly, as a pastor, reading and appreciating these parables in Luke chapter 15 helped redefine the focus of my efforts in ministry. And they helped shape the vision and mission and purpose of River Glen. Know that as a church, we will emphasize those who need rescue. 
we will always be most passionate about going after those who have wandered. And when those who've wandered are brought home, we don't bring them to a place where they experience shame and guilt. We want them to come to a place of love and acceptance and open-armed embrace that feels like a celebration, like a party. Jesus tells the point of explaining this story. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus said, that's my purpose in being here. These are his words about himself in Luke chapter 19. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus told this parable in response to criticism from the religious leaders. But they weren't the only ones listening. Jesus' followers were there, including his closest followers, the 12 disciples. Jesus was telling the story to teach them as well. He was telling the story to teach us, his followers today, to teach us to think about how we see others. So let's ask ourselves, if we were to adopt the zoom lens of Jesus, throwing aside the panoramic lens, laying down the selfie lens, to be able to focus on the one in front of us, who is it in your life who needs to be seen by you? Just like Devon Rodriguez, seeing people in a crowd on a subway, who in the crowd needs to be seen by you? In fact, as we start this series today, I'd like you to join me in praying a little prayer every day for the next few weeks. This is that prayer. God, who is the one person you want me to see? Would you start praying that prayer with me daily for the next few weeks? Who is the one person you want me to see? I'm excited to see the, the people whom God shows us who are in our path who need to be seen. We live in a culture that seems obsessed with the crowd or obsessed with ourselves, and it's my hope with God's help as we pray and we ask him to show us that we'll be able to see with a zoom lens instead. A few months ago at River Glen, we did a series called For Everyone. And one week in that series, we actually looked at the same story told by Jesus, the parable of the lost sheep. We were asked to think about the one, the one person in our lives that we might have the opportunity to notice, to reach out to, to invite, to, to join a place of belonging here at River Glen. And Don Rowe challenged us to think of the one and to write their name on a light bulb. And those light bulbs are still on display in the lobbies of our location. And maybe today you're reminded of the one that you wrote down, or maybe someone else is coming to mind. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear more about September Fest, and maybe that weekend is when you can invite that one to join you here at River Glen. Recently, I came across a BBC news article about how a storm had washed up hundreds of starfish on a stretch of beach in Scotland. And according to the news story, this sometimes happens after a really severe storm. And when it happens, if these starfish don't make their way back into the water, if they remain on the beach exposed to the sun, they'll dry out and they'll die like this one did. And seeing that photo from the news article reminded me of another parable, not one told by Jesus, but a, a fictional story that was told many, many times by public speakers when I was a teenager. I recall recalling hearing it a number of times. 
In the story, a man is walking along a beach after a storm, and similar to this photo, there are starfish stranded all along the beach, countless numbers of them. And as the man is walking, he encounters a boy picking up starfish one at a time, throwing them back into the ocean. And after watching for a moment, the man walked up to the boy and said, what are you doing? There's so many starfish here on the sand. Do you really think you can make a difference? Without pausing, the boy picked up another starfish. He stepped toward the water and he threw it back into the ocean. And he turned to the man and said, I made a difference for that one. A hundred sheep, one goes astray. Still have 99. Why bother pursuing the one? What difference does it make? Jesus says, go and make a difference for that one. That's living life with a difference. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the reminder in the example of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. When it comes to living life one at a time, when it comes to having a zoom lens and seeing the one who needs to be seen in a crowd, the person that you've caused to cross our path so that we can make a difference today. Today, Father, we begin to pray, who is the one person you want me to see? Show us that person. Help us to see the need of that person and to respond. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God who chases the one. Father, we've been that one. Help us to join you in making a difference for that one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.